Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 51. Once again, happy Mother's Day to all of our moms and hope you have a good day. We appreciate you very much. I don't have the most feel-good message for Mother's Day, but if we focus on the right things, we'll, we'll get to truths that make our hearts rejoice. I wanted to read Psalm 51 as we think about these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we are reminded of this very familiar psalm. And I want to read it not only, well, for a couple reasons. The first is that as David committed really what we would say is his great sin or a series of sins where he commits great atrocities towards Uriah and, and uh, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, we have this beautiful picture of, of forgiveness around repentance. Uh, and so that's the first reason that God always... Um, looks upon a, a sinner who repents genuinely and is happy to receive them into, uh, into his care and to shed his mercy and forgiveness um, upon their life in the, in the shadow of their failures and, uh, and failings. But the second is that as we think about the words of Jesus, as he looks into the depths of the law, and particularly the seventh commandment today, uh, and you kind of put Psalm 51 over that, and you can see under the inspiration of the Spirit how David is speaking of a new life that will be lived from the heart. And so he is often appealing to internal things in this psalm, so pay attention to that. And we'll talk about it a little bit later in the sermon. But Psalm 51, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery, with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And if you would go forth to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Once again, give your attention to God's word as it is read. The grass will wither, the flowers will fall, God's word will stand forever. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was a commercial that I saw recently, and it was in a place where the the sound wasn't on, so I was just looking at a screen And I saw a flash on the screen during this commercial, every second matters. I didn't know what what it was a commercial for at that time. All I saw was that phrase, every second matters. So sometimes you play these games, what is is this commercial about? What is it advertising? I thought maybe it was advertising some kind of emergency notification device uh, for someone who is in distress or perhaps something that could save the life of someone who is choking or something like that. You can imagine why my mind went there. You see a phrase like, every second matters, and you think that you're probably dealing with, uh, with life and death. I, uh, I get all the notifications, uh, the, the fire department chaplain, I get all the notifications on my cell phone of the calls that the guys go, go on. And you can tell when I get a notification on my phone, you can tell when they come ripping around the corner Uh, Or I can tell when I'm reading it that it's going to be one where they're going to really rip around the corner because it sounds like someone is really in in distress. It turns out that this was a commercial for a sports betting company. You may have noticed the last few years as sports betting has become legal in many places uh, in the country that these kinds of commercials have skyrocketed. And so the commercial is saying, well, you need to call this number there's this sign-up bonus that you can, you can now get. You sign up to, to bet through this sports book, and they're going to give you a, a bonus, and you, every second matters because the sooner you do that, the sooner you're going to get in on the action, and you don't want to miss that, that jackpot bet that you're sure to place the first day that you're going about your sports betting. I guess it's stuck in my mind because I'm thinking that if we can unironically say something like every second matters about sports betting, then we are a society that knows very little about the proper value of things. In Jesus' teaching elsewhere, he says, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? In other words, your soul, rightly valued, 
is worth more than all the riches of the entire world. All of the riches combined do not equal the value of your soul by itself. In today's passage, Jesus teaches a very similar truth from a different perspective. It is better to enter eternal life maimed and missing limbs than it is to enter condemnation whole. He does this in the context of teaching about inner purity and heart adultery and lust and how we need to strive for inward purity. Inward purity, genuine holiness that comes from the heart continues to be what separates the righteousness of Jesus and Jesus' kingdom from that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who do not have a holiness of heart, but their holiness focuses on external things. Uh, In this passage, there is very little hiding that any of us can do. This is certainly one of the most searching uh, teachings of Jesus. And we live in a very uh, extremely over-sexualized culture. And so because of that, these are words that have usefulness for all of us. As we realize just how difficult, just how challenging it is to strive for, to fight for inward purity. As we probably all know, the stakes are very high when we are talking about sex. Uh, listen to Robert Rayburn. The sins that we commit in this area of life are the most, some of the most painful and consequential of life. These are desires that continue all throughout life, that it is not just those who are young, but rather it continues through life. The factors of romance often blind young people when they are considering marriages. It blinds other people to make unwise choices. And then he concludes this section by saying this, as the whole Bible testifies... The romantic life being such a major force and large part of our lives, true wisdom inevitably must master these dimensions of life. Otherwise, instead of wonderful happiness and fulfillment, a roaring lion remains loose to devour our lives. Jesus demands that we do battle against this roaring lion. But where is the battleground? The battleground is the heart. The battleground for this fight of inward purity and seeking to live in accordance with the seventh commandment. The battleground is the heart. It is not chiefly externals. So we're going to look at a few things. First this, the teaching of Jesus. Second, the warning of Jesus. And lastly, the solution is Jesus. The teaching of Jesus, the warning of Jesus, the solution is Jesus. There is the broad command to not commit adultery, uh, and Jesus moves very quickly from that into what is going on in the heart. He wastes no time in doing so. And so the picture that he paints is very clear. What he is talking about is certainly easy to understand if we look at just this phrase, the, one who, the man who looks at a woman with lustful intent. In effect, he says, you could translate it this way if you wanted it to be more wooden and perhaps expanded. All those who would behold a woman for the purpose of lustful desire. The verb for behold or to see oftentimes goes beyond just kind of the neurons firing from the eyes into the brain. There is a a perceiving, a beholding, a knowing that often accompanies this word. And then it's strengthened by the verb for lustful desire, which is the verb epithumeo. That's actually discussed quite at length in one of the position papers in that packet that we put in the mailboxes this morning. 
The point is that there's no mistaking what is going on here. This is someone who is not just seeing something or someone, not someone who is just looking at something or someone, but rather uh, a long and desire-filled gaze that moves inward into the heart, into the mind, and, and devising ways in which these sinful desires could be fulfilled. Jesus goes next to really the key for what we are considering today. The person who thinks this way has already committed adultery with that person in his heart. So what is this heart adultery? What does it mean? How serious is it? Jesus is obviously continuing to bring us to the depth of the law's meanings. And today we are dealing with the seventh commandment. But it should be said that, of course, in the Ten Commandments themselves, we do deal and see uh, inward kinds of issues come up. For instance, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So you do see that the law is already working inward into the heart. But as Jesus expands the true meaning, the full meaning of God's law, we see it come back into the seventh commandment. So think about what Jesus has done. He's taken an outward sin, one that has been recognized as sinful, and he has brought it into the realm of the inward, the non-physical, the non-manifested, that which exists in the innermost parts of a person. Jesus says that is adultery. When the desire for adultery is harbored in the heart. This is actually the, the nub of a huge issue in the church right now. If you were to ask people this question, if you have a desire for something, if you're being tempted for something that you know would be wrong, but you do not act on it, would that be sinful? Christians uh, who would answer that probably it would be probably I think this is just a guess it would be about 50 50 on both sides well if you if you have that desire you don't act on it then you're not sinning there is no sin involved if you have that desire and sort of harbor it in your heart you don't act on it there's still something going on inside of you for which you ought to repent Look at the perspective from what we've been uh, adopting from Jesus own teaching here in Matthew what is it about what is the law about? What is, what is obedience about? It is about the heart. Last week, what did, we, what did we learn from the words of Jesus? That anger is like unto murder. It's a form of murder. When these desires find a home within you, you are sinning. There's actually a, quite a long historical conversation around this very issue uh, as it relates to inner desires, purity, whether or not we're dealing with, with actual sin. Uh, there's actually a Roman Catholic position that says yeah, these desires can be within you, but if you do not act on them, you are not sinning. Typically speaking, Protestants following Augustine have said, no, we have to evaluate our desires. We sin in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Part of understanding who we are is that while sinful corruption remains in us, even if we have been released from its penalty and power, it is active as a principle inside of us. John Calvin says this, We are so vitiated and perverted in every part of our nature that by this great corruption we stand justly condemned and convicted before God. And this perversity never ceases in us, but continually bears new fruits. It cannot be idle. This does not mean that 
every single thing that we do, every single thought that we have is as wicked as it could possibly be. But it means that all things that we do are tainted with sin. And there is a principle that is active within us, uh, a sin principle that is a sin nature that has been defeated in Christ and it no longer reigns over us, but it yet lives in us. So we have a lot of desires in this life and they may be good. We may desire to excel in our studies or our work, but it becomes sinful when it's accompanied by greed or a lust for recognition. We may desire to eat, and we all do, but gluttony is an abuse of God's gifts. When it comes to sexual desire, we were created for sexual intimacy, and there's no denying that, but only at the proper time and in the right context. That's part of what it means to understand the order of God's world. And this is why it's important to have those things in your mind and have those habits and those expectations even from a young age. Young, young children, this is why uh, your parents don't let you have dessert until after the meal. We have things that we want and our sinful heart would have us think that we should be able to have the things that we want right when we want them. All the time. So you want the chocolate. You want the ice cream. And you probably would rather eat the ice cream than the broccoli. But this is why your parents are teaching you that you need to eat the meal and then you get the dessert because things in life have their proper time and their proper place. And that's what it means to obey God and to live according to his ways. All of our desires, says one of my mentors, qualify as sinful when they are out of bounds or out of balance. In short, what is your desire latching onto? What is it that's inside of you? And and what are you hoping to fulfill? If If you desire something sinful, then that desire itself is sinful. And for it, we need to seek repentance and reconciliation to our God. But why? Two reasons. The first is, as we have said, that this is the level at which God looks upon his creatures. This is the level at which God evaluates his people. He does not want merely external conformity. That is not what God demands, and that is not the righteousness of Jesus' kingdom. He wants service and devotion to him that bubbles up from a genuine and sincere heart. And secondly, we must understand that if we desire the kind of righteousness that God would have for us, we must understand the damage that can and will be done when we allow sin to find a home in our hearts. John Owen said this, Sin is not only always working in us, but if left alone, if left untouched, if not dealt with, it will ultimately lead us to commit major, scandalous, and soul-destroying evil acts. He goes on to say this, And this is the kind of mentality you need to have towards your sin in your heart. Sin always aims at the utmost. In other words, it tries to go as far as it can. That's always what it's trying to do. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, it aims at the utmost, might it have its own course. It would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. It's absolutely right. Does sin ever stop at the desire? No. Is that what sin is ever trying to do in you? It's just going to sort of let it fester in your heart and let you harbor some kind of sinful desire in your heart? No, it's trying to make its way 
out. Either it's killed or it continues to grow. I was doing some weeding this past week and you know, pulling up some weeds. I couldn't quite get to the root of a couple of them. And there were things going on in the house with the family. I had to have my attention on other things. And so I just kind of pulled up everything that I could see because I couldn't quite get to the root. What does that mean? It means I'm going to have to go back later and either do the same thing or actually get to the root. This leads us to the natural conclusions from Jesus' teaching. The axe must be laid to the root of the tree when we're talking about dealing with the sin in our hearts. If we are to fight sin in our lives, we must fight it at the root and from the heart. This is the battleground and where it is won or lost. We must do battle against the desires that wage war on us from the inside. If we want to honor God... That is where the battle must be fought. And it means most importantly that when we call God's people to Christian obedience, we're calling them to fight the battle here for inner purity because that is what God demands and that is the righteousness of Jesus' kingdom. That's Christian obedience or it's not obedience that pleases God. We can think of the many ways in which uh, this teaching touches upon the various issues in the church today, especially with the the question of identity. Some people may say, well, I experience desires that are not in line with the biblical position on marriage. Somebody has homosexual desires or bisexual desires or desire to live a transsexual lifestyle or the the desire to have many partners. And those desires are not sinful unless I act on them. Evaluating it in light of Jesus' words and in in light of God's word, we must say that sexual desire for anything outside of marriage between one man and one woman is a sinful desire. A man who lusts after a woman who is not his wife, that is sin. A man who struggles with lustful thoughts of other men, that is sin as well. These desires can find no proper expression in a biblical worldview, seeking to live in obedience. God demands that we fight the level here, at this, at the level of the heart. So that is the teaching of Jesus, then the warning that Jesus gives. Many of us will instinctively say, well, surely adultery and lust, they they can't be totally equated. Those two things can't be exactly the same. And certainly there are differences. But they are not the kind of differences that make us think that we can excuse the kind of inward sins that we often struggle with. The differences can probably be summed up in, this, in these ways. Lust and adultery are different in their initial consequences and in the process of repentance that follows them. Adultery has different initial consequences, much more profound, enough to keep us all from it, and yet... This is the exact kind of sin that often uh, finds its way into the church and many beloved Christians. Its sting is that of total guilt and regret and loss of assurance and peace. If you are caught or confess, perhaps a ruined marriage, ruined life, financial consequences that reverberate through a lifetime, the list goes on. Proverbs 7 speaks of the many ways uh, that we ought to furnish our minds with reminders of all of these things so that we don't go down that path. There's a, a father speaking to his son, and he is speaking of an adulteress and saying, stay away, don't walk down her street, don't go past her door at night. He says this, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. 
as an ox goes to the slaughter, right? just like an unknowing animal to his death. As a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. When you harbor lust, when you hold it in your heart, when you treasure it, when you allow it to exist in the innermost parts of who you are, you will probably experience many of the spiritual consequences similar to adultery. Loss of assurance, a loss of a right fellowship with God, a loss of a peace and a quiet of the soul. You can avoid some of the more damaging outward consequences, though rampant lust, which turns into habitual pornography use, can cause many of the same results. But then the process of repentance is different as well. Think of it this way. The deeper you go into a sin, the longer you put repentance off, the harder the work of repentance is. Thomas Brooks names this as one of Satan's devices. He can, the, Satan is trying to convince you that repentance is easy. It's easy work. Right? Grace is free. Christ has paid the price. Do what you want, and then you can repent. It's easy to get right with God. It's not. In the case of something like adultery, repentance is hard soul work that can take years, both before God and those who are hurt. Repentance for lust is not necessarily easy, but simpler than if it remains unchecked and proceeds to its intended end. But next, notice the force of what Jesus says. Right? You cannot miss what he is actually saying because the initial consequences might be different initially. But where does one end up with unrepented, unforgiven lust in the heart? The same place as an unforgiven adulterer in hell. Jesus says the eye can cause you to go to hell just as much as the hand. Many people wonder, what is that progression that Jesus makes there from the eye to the hand? Well, it's, it's probably just this. The, the eye is referring to what's going on in, inwardly, and the hand is just manifested, right? The right hand stood for all of your actions. So the eye is causing you to sin, and that, that's inward sin, and the hand is causing you to sin. In other words, it's working itself out. It's manifesting its way into your life. That's what Jesus is saying. So we can obviously be, be realistic and say, Jesus is not saying that lust and adultery are exactly the same in every single way, but we cannot excuse the force of it either. And what Jesus is trying to make his people see is that he wants you to be ruthless when it comes to doing battle against your sin. He wants you to take up arms, to take up the armor of God, to take up the word of God, and to fight this battle ruthlessly in your life. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks of the duties of the first commandment so beautifully. It says this. What must we do to obey the first commandment? We must sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust him alone, look to him for every good thing. We must humbly, patiently love him, fear him, and honor him with all our hearts. And it already sees that it's a heart issue. And then it says this. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against his will in any way. I give up anything rather than go against his will in any way. 
how often do we rationalize, well, I don't want to give this up, and if I keep it, I'll just go against his will in a very slight way. First commandment commands more. Jesus puts this in a stark picture for us. He's not endorsing that we mutilate our bodies. He's not saying gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. One pastor put it beautifully. None of us have enough eyes to gouge out. None of us have enough hands to cut off. And Jesus is not endorsing mutilation of our bodies. But just because he's not being literal, as one pastor puts it, just because he's not being literal, it doesn't mean he's not being serious. And that's what we have to square with. And there is truth to the thought that it would be better to go into eternity, into eternal life, maimed and go to heaven than to have a life of pleasure and go to hell. That would be better, wouldn't it? So if his declaration is not literal, yet it is serious, what is he calling us to do? Be ruthless in our battle against sin. What are the things you need to cut out from your life? What are the things that put you on the path to temptation that you know puts you in a bad place and you fall and you fail and it causes you to go against the will of God? Hebrews 12.4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, this is speaking to those who are being persecuted. But what's going on here is, is he's saying, you ought to be ready to shed your blood to fight against sin. It means that you order your life in a way that allows you to fight against sin. So back to John Owen. Consider the ways, the people, the opportunities, the activities, the conditions that have in the past led to sin. Especially if it happens often. Be extremely watchful about all of them. People frequently do this when it comes to physical or bodily problems. We keep a watch out for the seasons of the year, the foods we eat, polluted air, or anything else that can aggravate or trigger diseases or reactions in us. Pause. Think. It's a very, very clear illustration right in front of us. Think uh, of the great lengths people have gone to in the last 15 months to avoid contracting coronavirus. Are our souls any less important, he says. Anyone who allows himself to play with fire when it comes to the things that let sin have its way in us obviously isn't properly concerned about sin since he's more than willing to risk himself in dangerous situations. So consider the ways that lead to sin. The people in your life. The opportunities. The activities. The conditions. In our sinfulness, people will always say, oh, I'm never going to do that again. I learned my lesson. I'll never do that again. But if you tell them that they, what they are doing is putting themselves in a dangerous situation where they will be extremely tempted to commit that sin, they'll have nothing to say. And so often people say, well, I learned my lesson. I'm not going to do it again. And so you need to preach that to yourself. You need to preach that to others as part of being uh, a part of a Christian community to keep our eyes on one another and to help each other. That is the the warning of Jesus, that these kinds of things can, first off, lead to hell, and if left unchecked, it will have its way in us. And then, finally, uh, Jesus as the solution. The solution is Jesus. You call people to fight the battle here, and I understand in our world, our connected world, and the ubiquity of entertainment, and, and the way that pornography is rampant everywhere in the world, You call people to fight the battle here at the heart. Issues of identity, 
All these kinds of things. And they'll say, you're putting a load on people that they cannot bear. And this is a passage that ought to hit us with a great amount of force. To strive for inner purity is a high calling. People might say, well, it would be too difficult. Let's just hope that we don't break any of these outward commands. And that's really the best we can do. Well, that's not the best we can do. Jesus demands more, doesn't he? The good news is that Jesus, as our high priest, gives more. You think of the words of Augustine, uh, command what thou will. Or in other words, God, command whatever you want. Because you have the right to do that. But grant what you command. Whatever you command from me, you will need to give me by your grace. And that's exactly what, what happens with Jesus and exactly why Jesus is the solution. We talk about obeying from the heart, from a pure heart, but none of us have pure hearts. We have defiled hearts. But Jesus, as our high priest, purifies our hearts. He gives us a new heart. He purifies the hearts of people whose hearts are defiled. Hebrews 9, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You want to serve God from a pure heart? Look to Christ and believe in him and know that this is what he does for us. He cleanses us from the inside and down into the depths of who we are. How can we know that God is with us in striving in our battle for heart purity? How can we know that the battle we are fighting is not in our own strength because Jesus, as your high priest, cleanses your heart? That is the work that his blood does. That is the level to which his blood goes. Psalm 51, we read it before the sermon, and you see all of the inner truths that are being brought out. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. That word purge, just cleanse me from the inside out. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And where that leads us is that when we come to know and trust that our hearts have been made pure, we love our great priest, our great high priest, from that same purified heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So many of us in, in this battle, and we look around this world and, and the way in which all these things are just all around us, all of the time. And we have to notice the ways in which our heart is pulled away from Christ. Away from devotion to him. And all of these idols in our world that are pulling us away. And the way to fight that is to seek to know your Savior more. Because when you know your Savior more, when you trust in him more, when you are meditating on who he is and what he has done, your heart will grow in love for him. John Donne, in one of his poems, speaking of God, he said this, Except you enthrall me, I will never be free. Except you enthrall me, I will never be free. You want to be free from the battle that seems to so easily entangle you, who you are inwardly? If Christ controls your heart, if Christ is the greatest love that you have, he shall set you free. So how can you love Jesus more? 
You are to think about, meditate on his priestly work. Think about his purifying work for you at Calvary. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Think about what he has done. Think about the price that he paid and why he paid it. Not just so you would have external conformity to these things, but that you would love him from a heart that he has made pure. Meditate on the fact that even now, he intercedes for you in heaven. Purifying your heart day by day. Making you new day by day. Covering your sins with his blood. He intercedes for you. He continues to work for you. Even though you fall in so many ways. Romans 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Why can you know that you will not be separated from God? Because Christ continues to work for you. And Christ continues to give you a purified heart. And continues to build you up in assurance and love and devotion. And if you fill your heart with the love of Christ, there will not be room for these false, idolatrous, and wicked loves that so easily find their way into our heart. Jesus is the solution. And so great a Savior demands a love that encapsulates your whole heart, all that you are, from the inside. Know and believe that he covers your sin, that he purifies you, that he is your strength in your battle for purity. You are called to fight the battle, but you do not fight it in your own strength. You fight it, but not by your own strength. You fight it by the strength that is found in Christ, in the gospel, in the spirit that he gives to us. And since that is what he wants from you, since that is what he demands from you, he will grant it. He will give it. That is the promise. That whatever he commands, he will give by his grace. Even if little by little, to those who walk by faith, to those who trust in the sufficiency of Christ's work, walking by the spirit that he gives to us, he will grant it so that you might serve the living God from a heart that is pure, from the depths of the heart that he has changed so that you might live the holiness that he grants. It's always in the freedom that Christ has won for you and it's always by the strength that he gives to you. Because of Calvary, he has set you free. Because of his intercession, he remains with you as your strength to fight the battle that he calls you to fight, to strive for purity from the heart, from the inside out. That is how you honor God, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you all thanks and praise. We praise you and we adore you as our King. We thank you for Christ because we know that without him, none of us would have any hope of standing before you. We are all so hopeless in and of ourselves. And so break the pride of all of us so that we may look with humility to the Savior of all the world, to the only one in whom salvation can be found in Christ. We do thank you and praise you for these words of assurance and hope, and we know that it is not easy 
to hear these words, but we pray that these words would be like a plow in our hearts to root out any pride, any bitterness, any ego, any self-righteousness, and to make us know that even if we want to fight this battle and we want to honor you, if we try to go about it by our own strength, we will fail. So turn all of our eyes to Christ, a sufficient Savior, a glorious and faithful and loving high priest. We thank you for him. We pray that you would increase our faith in him and our trust in him to continually know that we fight in the strength that he gives and the strength that you give to Father. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.